Hey leaders, it's Carrie here. And before we jump into today's episode, I've talked to so many of you who are just exhausted. It has been one season of leadership. And so I want to help. If you haven't ever checked out The High Impact Leader, I would encourage you to do that. My team and I have some very special things happening over there this week. It's a full course I give on how to get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. But this week, in light of the overwhelm, I've added some special bonuses, including a live coaching session, group coaching session I've never done before. You can find it all at thehighimpactleader.com. If you're tired of being overwhelmed, if you're tired of being frustrated, if you're tired of never getting it all done, well, head on over. It's time limited over at thehighimpactleader.com. Would love to see you there. Would love to help you get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. It's thehighimpactleader.com. We'll see you over there. In the meantime, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 414 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. And uh, I'm so excited to have Tim Keller back. We'll say more about that in a moment. This episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can book your free digital consultation today at promediafire.com forward slash growth and by Glue and Barna Cities. Get to know the people you're serving by signing up today at barnacities.com. Well, I'm very excited to have Tim Keller back. I know a lot of you are too. I had him on last May and uh, I flew in with a crew from Barna to New York City at the end of February and we recorded, filmed this interview, my first interview with Tim Keller. Little did we know how prevalent coronavirus was in the city at that time. Fortunately, none of us caught it as best as we know. Man, that interview, I just keep hearing about it over and over again. You've accessed that. I think it's been downloaded now in audio and video form over 200,000 times. And Tim's back today. And we originally did this conversation for the other podcast I do, which if you haven't checked it out and you're a church leader, please do. It's called Church Pulse Weekly. So we did both of those interviews for some of the joint projects we're working on. But I'm happy to bring it to you. And we're bringing you the unedited entire conversation with Tim Keller now. Little did he know that not only was coronavirus surging in a way he didn't realize it, but he was probably already suffering with pancreatic cancer, which he was diagnosed with in May of 2020. And we talk about that. We talk about rethinking. He's got a fascinating conversation about rethinking his beliefs about suffering, what cancer is teaching him. And then, of course, we dive into the future of the church. And one of the things I love about Tim, I always think, you know, he's somebody who's going to be read 100 years from now. If there are people on the earth, Tim Keller is going to be read. Um, So he's deeply grounded, a, a real thinker, and I mean, profound thinker, but also very in tune with culture. It's a rare combination. And if you haven't checked out the first interview, it's on YouTube. It's also obviously on my audio podcast feed. Make sure you do that. And um, just listen to the depth and the relevancy that he has in both conversations. So we're going to talk about all of that today. For those of you who may be new to Tim Keller, there's probably five of you. Uh, Tim is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, which he started in 1989 with his wife, Kathy, their young sons, for 28 years. He led this diverse congregation of young professionals. It grew to a weekly attendance of over 5,000 people. He is also the chairman and co-founder of Redeemer City to City, which starts new churches and so many other things. His books, including the New York Times bestselling The Reason for God and The Prodigal God, have sold over 2 million copies and been translated into 25 languages. So, man, it's wonderful to have Tim back on the podcast. Thanks for making the time available for that. And of course, the other interviewer on this is David Kinneman, my partner in crime over at Church Pulse Weekly. Hey, imagine being wowed by the beautiful content you see on your social media feed. By Instagram, Facebook, all week long, stories are filling up with excitement, graphic and custom animations that stop the scroll. And the best part, you didn't do a thing. It was all done for you by the Pro Media Fire team. The process is simple. It starts with brand discovery, then they confirm that Pro Media Fire knows your brand, and then you just hand it off. Done for you social media management. That's how you wake up excited without all the hassle. So let the pros handle your social media for your church or your company 
while you focus on the mission. You can book a free consultation today at promediafire.com forward slash growth. And speaking of Barna, um, man, I've loved my partnership that we've kind of dove in deeply with them and Glue over the last year. And what I'm excited about is the resources that they can bring to the church. So our friends at Barna and Glue have been working to support local pastors and church leaders like you, especially hard over this last year. So last year, Barna and Glue launched an effort to equip the church through the State of the Church Research and Toolkits and over 25,000 churches benefit. But this year, they're going deeper and more local with Barna Cities. It's a year-long journey. It's uniquely local, and you will have access to new local research from Barna. So national-level quality in your city. There'll be monthly forums, so you can join in with a variety of leaders nearby. And you'll also be equipped with the City Toolkit, which includes a full membership to Barna Access Plus with on-demand reports, insights, and tools. And you'll get Glue Connect, with cooperative always-on ads that run across your city. If you're curious to see where they're rolling it out, and they've got a number of cities covered already, sign up today at BarnaCities.com. That's BarnaCities.com. Well, I'm excited about the future. Very, very thrilled and honored and humbled to have yet another conversation with the one and only Tim Keller. Tim Keller, welcome back. It's so good to have you. I'm glad to be with you. I wish we could do this face-to-face, but uh, this is way better than nothing. Yes, it is. It is. It is. And we got that opportunity last time. And don't take it for granted anymore like, you know, perhaps we would have in the past. Well, the world has changed an awful lot since February of 2020. And your world, as I'm sure many of our listeners would know, has changed dramatically. Um, what would you say has changed most profoundly in your personal journey? You got a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, have been going through that. I would just love to know over the last year, what, what are you thinking about day to day? Well, yes, the, the, um, the day after I found out I did have cancer, um, which was in May of last year, um, the uh, sat down and uh, two words came to me as I was meditating and praying. Don't forget, I'm Presbyterian and, you know, not Pentecostal. So when you get words, when you're Presbyterian, you really better write them down. <laughs> you don't you usually don't get words. <laughs> and um, they were uh, your sanctification and focus. And what that meant was, first of all, it was... Um, and David knows this because uh, his wife's been through this with a very, very, I also, it's a similarly very bad cancer. Um, it, time is, I'm not going to die tomorrow. You know, I've got, I've got some time left, but it's, it's very limited. And uh, so the number one, I, I, I realized that I needed to focus on certain things. I had to figure out what that was. I would say that a, a man who was, was 69 years old, I actually was pretty unfocused because the reality is it doesn't matter whether you have cancer or not. When you're approaching 70, you should actually know the time is short. You don't really have decades anymore. You've got years anyway. And so I should have been more focused, but I was tending to do whatever anybody asked me to do. Like most ministers get in the habit years before you just do, you're a nice person, you're a minister. So you do whatever anybody asks you to do. And um, I had no focus. I really didn't. I wasn't saying, what, what do I really, if I only had, one year left, two, three, four, five years, what should I be doing? I didn't have that focus. Now I did. Secondly, the word sanctification was that God was, was saying, if you would die of a heart attack at the age of 73, that wouldn't work because if you've got two years left or three years left, you're really not holy enough for what I have for you. You're not close enough to me. You're, you're not dependent enough on me. Too much of your faith is abstract. And therefore, I'm not going to take you suddenly by a stroke or a heart attack. I'm going to give you a really serious cancer uh, so that you are going to, the last part of your year of your life, you will be living with the prospect of death all the time in a way that you wouldn't if you were taken suddenly. And therefore, why? Why would he do that? Because he says, actually, you're not holy enough for what I have for you left to do. So. And, you know, it made perfect sense. It was scary. You, know, you, you, you sit down and you say, this isn't right. You know, Kathy always said, I thought when we turned 70, we'd feel a lot older. 
And we didn't, and we were ready to go and ready to do all those sorts of things. So why, why? This seems unfair. And then as soon as I thought about it, I said, actually, this makes perfect sense. I mean, God probably has a hundred million reasons why he's doing this to me. And I can only disturb one or two. But the two even I saw made ridiculous amount of sense. I said, of course. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what's changed. I mean, a lot has changed. The focus and just being drawn, just being pushed toward God in a way it wasn't before. Thanks so much for sharing with us, Tim. And, you know, these, uh, these windows into these moments for you, uh, I've been, been trying to be faithful in, in, uh, in a similar journey with my wife's glioblastoma of, uh, leading as publicly and as openly and unafraid as we can about, uh, all that. And it has been, you know, this, this, uh, revealer of what I try to control where, where real control comes from and, and what doesn't, what we do and don't really have impact on. And, uh, it's been a, a thing that's softened my heart for, you know, the, the, the place of the church, uh, and how we can really minister to people in their place of deep need. And, and, and also really recognizing through the pandemic, it was almost like, as soon as the pandemic hit, it's like, wow, I've got three years. I've been practicing what it looks like to, to lead through crisis because my wife's had uh, a terminal brain, brain tumor. And, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, it's been, uh, too many, too many lessons to compress into a couple of minutes, but I appreciate you sharing that with us. You uh, wrote a very powerful piece. You've written a lot of powerful pieces, but your most recent piece in The Atlantic on death and dying, uh, I thought was very, very helpful. You said something interesting I just want to pick up on. I, and, and if I got it slightly wrong, let me know. But, you know, God is doing this to me. It's interesting. That sort of pushes at the theodicy. I'd love your uh, take on suffering. Um, I thought what you quoted from, was it Charles Taylor, was really helpful in The Atlantic. And h- how are you rethinking suffering? The word rethinking is interesting. I mean, rethinking could mean I'm just going back through what I thought before. That's closer that rethinking sometimes can mean um, uh, thinking a new way about it, in a different way. I actually don't think I am thinking about it a different way. I mean, I, I, I think most of what I believed about suffering was more head knowledge. And I hadn't really made it operational in my in my life. That's that's the main burden of the um, the article that you read hmm. was to say when I went back and looked at what I believed about suffering, I did write a book on suffering, a whole book <laughs> with Johnny with Johnny Erickson, who's kind of an expert on suffering, said it was the best book she'd ever read on it. Which she told me that personally, and I was thinking, oh wow, all right. I mean that that's a high compliment, and yet I you know I hadn't suffered as much as Johnny Erickson, so I hadn't used a lot. I mean, what you have, you've got a couple of things. The Bible, um, Christianity, A, is the only religion that gives you a God who actually has suffered. And you have to be very careful with the Trinitarian language here. <laughs> because Jesus Christ, you know, was the Son of God, and he experienced suffering in his human nature. Okay, I, I do know all that. So when all the letters come in from the Trinitarian, you know, the Trinitarians, um, you know, you can say Tim understands that. Um, on the other hand, you know, Jesus Christ still has a body. That is, that is the teaching of all Christian churches, uh, all Orthodox churches, and it still has the nail prints. Uh, so when Hebrews said, says, you have a God, you have a savior who's experienced whatever you're experiencing. There's no other religion gives you that. Have you ever lost a child? Have you ever lost a son? You know, outlived a son. Well, God has. Have you ever been betrayed by your best friends? Well, you know, Jesus has. See? Have you ever uh, faced certain a certain painful death? Yes. I mean, so first of all, you've got someone, and, and Hebrews says, go to him because he knows. He's, he's been through it. Uh, and then secondly, you also have a God who is going to heal all suffering at the end of time. And then therefore, in the end, uh, and one, one way to one way to put this is is if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, if he really really rose from the dead, so that that means that that the, the teaching of the gospel in the Bible is true. So if he really rose from the dead, guess what? Everything's going to be okay. In the end, everything's going to be okay. David is going to be okay. Carrie's going to be okay. My my wife is going to be okay. David's wife is going to be okay. It's it, we're going to it's everything's going to be fine. So you put those two things together. You've got a God who actually knows sufferings I can go through now when I'm in the midst of it. And then I can know that eventually 
just hold on because it's going to be okay. And I, the other religions of the world actually don't, they don't offer that sort of thing. Even people that believe in paradise, we're talking about a new heavens and new earth. Christianity is saying, when we say everything's going to be okay, that means this world's going to be restored. We're not going to get a consolation for the loss of this world. We're actually going to get the world. So, uh, okay, so you say rethinking. Rethinking meaning I just have to go back and think again through all the stuff I already believe. I didn't change it at all. I, I, I had to appropriate it. I had to make it something that helped me get through the day. And, and uh, in that sense, yes, I rethought it. But basically, I don't think right now the word rethink usually means I've changed. And I, I haven't, which is weird. You know why? Because it's so, it's so, it's such a, the Christian theology of suffering, the biblical theology of suffering is so potent. It's just sitting there unused by most people. So God has just said, nope, go get it, go use it. You mentioned unfocused, which kind of surprised me, to be honest with you. I, I think of you as very focused. Um, any more on that? And then if you could go back a decade, 15 years, pick a time window, is there any way you would have changed your focus or become more focused knowing what you know now? I think what it means is that there are the things that you know you ought to be trying to spend most of your time doing, and then there's things everybody else asks you to do. Now, maybe, maybe, listen, maybe you are, will be different. Maybe you'll be different um, than me. I would think most people are like this, though. I mean, I'm an oldest child. Um, and so I'm kind of like, I'm the, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which I'm probably worse than most people at trying to please people and keep them happy. Uh, I'm certainly worse than my wife. My wife is way better at saying, I just can't do that. You know, and knowing the person's going to be unhappy with her, and I—that's harder. So it's harder for me. Therefore, that might be why I'm more focused. But basically, when I say unfocused, meaning didn't mean I didn't know what I should be doing. It's just that I never get to most of it because I was too busy with people who would say, "You know, you can help me so much if you would write this, look at this, come speak here, and do this." So I—I I honestly think that uh, that's what I meant. That I just wasn't able to be disciplined enough. And here's the here's a gift about this. It's not only that I can really see that I have become more focused, but actually, frankly, the people around me are allowing me to do that. I mean, we're all selfish. We all say, look, I know you're so busy, and I I hate to ask you this, but you know, could you please do this for me? And uh now people are actually being a lot more careful about about it. So anyway, that's what I meant by focus, I think. Do you have a sense of what you want to zone in on over the next couple of years, what you really want to devote your time and energy to? Well, it, now here's the thing. You actually do know about that because we talked about it last time we talked. Mm. So, so many of the th things we talked about saying that there is, a, and maybe we can talk more about it now, there yeah. really has been a cultural shift. Yes. And it's not just a cultural shift, actually. There's a cultural breakdown which maybe we want to talk a little bit about um, that, that therefore older ways of doing evangelism and Christian formation, I think are in this country are becoming obsolete. Mm -hmm. And so the truth is not where I'm not going to change the truth, but how we impart it, how we shape people with it, how we recommend it. So all the things we talked about before, maybe you should say, okay, the pandemic changed those things. I know you're going to get to questions like that, but you can. But basically, I would say um, the things I talked to you about before, that's what it really would, what most concerns me, that the church is not able to form its own young people growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the world is catechizing them in a way that we're not. And then secondly, even the way we do apologetics and evangelism, I think just, it's just going to have to, um, it's just going to have to change. And we talked about that, so we can talk about it more right here if you want. I'd love to hear uh, one one thought about ways you think that the church could better catechize young people. A lot of my life's work has really been focused on understanding this massive gap of those under age 40 and really under age 30 today, what are often called millennials and Gen Z. And I'm just convinced that we, we've, we've lost the heart of, of so many of these young people, the, the data to bear that out. But even, even those who are in the church are sort of being formed and malformed by culture uh, what do you think some of the, the reasons for that are and what would be a way we could think differently about that um, as church leaders? Well, I think I may, I, 
think I may have actually even used this illustration with Carrie last time. I can't remember, but um, that's okay because we, we've, we've got a, uh, it's a new time and we have to talk about it again. Um, I think I may have mentioned, if you look at the real catechisms, I'm not saying that we have to actually write literal catechisms, though maybe we do. But the real catechisms, the older ones, they, you know, it's a question and answer. So if you go back and look at Luther's catechism, Calvin's catechism, Westminster, Heidelberg, all the various ones that were written during the Reformation, you'll notice things like this. You'll notice that they, they, they ask very, they make two or three questions about the Trinity. But then they'll ask you 10 questions about justification or the sacraments or the Lord's Supper and things like that. And the reason is because you never catechize, you never really are just only um, teaching people what the Bible says. You're also inoculating them against the, the, the dominant alternatives. So if you were not a Protestant Christian in Europe in the 16th century, you'd be Catholic. In other words, the, the alternative to being catechized as a Protestant was you'd be a Catholic. That's the reason why the catechism actually was inoculating you against the counter-narrative. Now, Catholics and Protestants have this very same beliefs about the Trinity, the deity of Christ, etc., but they don't have the same beliefs about salvation, how you receive salvation, justification, you know, the Lord's Supper and things like that. And therefore, the catechisms are actually not just shaped by what the Bible says, but also what the alternative narratives are. I would say today, the alternative narratives, we are... Our, uh, the way we train younger people doesn't take on the identity narrative or the freedom narrative or the science narrative or the, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, they, they're very, very profound narratives and, and they're, getting them, they're getting them dozens of times a day in all sorts of ways. Uh, and, and unless we, to me, to, here's what inoculation, inoculation is giving people a little bit of the disease but also one that actually uh, stimulates the antibodies, right? That's, that's, I mean, I just got vaccinated, by the way, about uh, COVID, so I'm just reading about that. And so what you want to do is you want to not just talk about the Trinity, but you want to say, how does the doctrine of the Trinity actually differ from what people say about human life today? I mean, how does it, uh, or what, what, what the Bible says about the gospel, how is that different than the identity narratives that are out there, that your primary identity is something that, you find in yourself, or your primary identity is a racial one. Is that your primary primary identity? And you have to, we're going to have to have to engage those things in the way in which we do doctrinal training, because the kids that they're being engaged. So you actually, you really can't just give them the kind of traditional doctrine that we've been given for 500 years, and then hope that they make the connection. You have to say, if you believe this, and this is true, then this doesn't work over here. And so that's that. Uh, we're, we're, I don't. I haven't seen almost any material that actually does that. It's all. Uh, it looks abstract, but it's basically based on. By and large, most most evangelical churches are really still trying to teach kids how not to be Catholic. That's actually not their biggest problem. So interesting, and I couldn't agree more. I, I think. I'm just observing that so much of your work in the city in New York and a world of ideas and in a, a world of, um, you know, so many people who are, who are socially and financially climbing and, and the, the sort of the, uh, sort of the contest for how faith fits into our largely secular age, um, gives you a, a context for that. And for me, what I've uh, observed about this generation is that screens are discipling them. That is, is sort of the primary means by which they're being catechized by social media and, and technology and entertainment. And so the, the average church in not in New York city is now dealing with pressures that uh, would have been, would have been the case you've been dealing with for, for many years. And so we really do need a, a complete reframe of the kinds of, you know, to use Jesus metaphor, the, 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 the wine skins of helping to invest in younger generations. So it's a, it's a, the, the way you describe that is very inspiring to me. And I think it's so important. Yeah, in some ways, you know, we talked about uh, identity. I remember that very clearly from our conversation a year ago, how uh, people are seeing everything now through the lens of identity, whether it's gender identity, sexual identity, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and that the gospel actually addresses that. So in many ways, our earlier conversation 
talked about disruptions that were happening. And then COVID hit and everything got accelerated. To what extent, what do you see accelerated? Like any thoughts on, because obviously the world has changed, but like, I mean, what, what has got your attention now over the last year from a leadership theological perspective that perhaps got accelerated or changed by the pandemic? Well, I, th- I think the things that were happening before are going to continue to happen. I don't think it's completely clear to me yet how the pandemic is disrupting those trajectories. I don't think they're reversing any of them. I, d- I don't believe the pandemic's reversing them. But some will be accelerated, some will be decelerated, and some will just be thrown off the older track. I mean, I'm just trying to think. So, for example, uh, we did not talk about this, Carrie, and uh, okay. one of the problems with even getting into this one is because it's actually unfortunately political. But the reality is that the middle class is sort of going away. And the reason is, and there's a fair amount of good research that I believe in, is that is that basically uh, wage, wage, how do I say, labor is not as valuable as assets. Mm-hmm. So the people who can live off of their investments um, are pulling away from the people who have to go out and earn a living, you know, with wage. Wow. And, and so, and that's getting, that we know, the pandemic we know has made that worse because we, de- we definitely know that very wealthy people have become far wealthier during the pandemic. Virtually almost everybody who's really wealthy and has enough money to have, you know, a portfolio out there, they've just done extraordinarily well. And we do know that, that there's a big, for a lot of reasons why blue collar labor is, a bit, I mean, blue collar labor has been hit so hard. There's a lot of jobs that may not come back. And, and so there's just one example of, the, of the, the growing economic inequality that is really fueling a lot of the problems uh, politically is not it, in any ways getting worse. Uh, on the other hand, we just think about another one is, um, well, I guess on identity. Okay, here's a change, Terry. Here's a change. Um, one secular identity approach, which is non-Christian, of course, is I call the therapeutic model, which is you look inside, you find out your deepest desires and whatever's in there, you decide that's the real me. You don't, you don't, identity is not found in God or in my family or in my duties. It's found in, I want to see my deepest desires and I have to realize those desires. And that's my identity. The other, another approach, which we already knew about before was, um, if I am a, a minority, that's my main identity, which means, in other words, because I'm, I'm not white, I'm not male, I'm not straight, um, there's, a, there's a virtue in that. And so my primary identity is I am a, um, um, I've been a marginalized person. And that's, that's another approach, which I think is certainly not the Christian approach. But here's the other thing is Christian nationalism, which is a fusion of America. Okay, of course, the Canadians have no problems with this because they're just so sanctified here. But we Americans have this. Well, actually, you, you, you don't have the same problem with it. Um, and the reason for that is the event, evangelicalism in Canada is too small. Very small. It's too small for this to have happened. But down here where it's bigger is you now have a, a, a number of people who are saying you're not a real American unless you're a white Protestant Christian. We don't want Muslims here. We don't want all these immigrants here. And you're getting a few, it's really a kind of, it's a new, a new identity politics, only it's a right-wing identity politics. And it's a fusion of Christianity with being a white American. And so, in, so there's that one. There's the therapeutic individualistic one. There's the kind of progressive victim one. And now there's a right-wing one. And they're all... Um, what we would call in Christianity, they're all identity heresies. I mean, they're, they're all ways of thinking about identity that are really, really uh, very destructive. We think they're destructive to the people who are adopting them as their primary identities. And all of them are absolutely against what the Bible says, I, how identity works. And so that's a change. I, I wouldn't even have said that a year ago with you, that right wing kind of identity. Um and yet there they are. So in a sense, nothing is stopped, but there, some things are going faster, some things are going slower, and some things are kind of taking, taking some detours. But they're all kind of, all of our political, 
and cultural and economic crises are still heading in that direction. But we don't completely know yet how the pandemic is changing things, but they, it is still changing things pretty profoundly, but not, not reversing anything. One of the things we saw in our uh, tracking research is this, the profound impact that the pandemic has had on pastoring and on leading, uh, leading congregations, which is, which is primarily about bringing people together was well, about a lot of things, but, but the expression of that is, yes. is on Sunday morning worship. And so um, we saw in our data, three in 10 pastors say they've seriously considered uh, quitting this year um, and, and speak about um, h- how you find our um, yeah. s- sort of deepest, truest calling in ministry and a time when things sort of all bets feel like they're off. Yeah. Now, you know, you're talking to a person who actually, because I was retired, I'm retired. You know, I mean, I stepped out of being a leader of a church three years ago. So I'm not actually experienced in this, but I mean, I, I can certainly speak to it because I'm talking to plenty of folks, but I, I do have to say uh, to Kathy, I said, you know, I got pancreatic cancer, but at least I'm not actually a working pastor right now. <laughs> I mean, I was trying, I've said that some days. Uh, I said, man, I do, would not want to be out there trying to pull things together. Here's the thing, Dave and Carrie, like there's not a single pastor recently that anybody has said, you're doing a great job. Mm. I was like, it's been because n- nobody is doing a great job because it, nobody's, there's no wins. I mean, in the very, very beginning, when you went online, there did seem to be a little bit, I say, oh my goodness, we have, you know, we have a church of 300, but a thousand people are watching us every, every Sunday. Well, after a while, people begin to realize, okay, here's a thousand people that they're watching, but we don't know if that one person is five, got five folks in a family at home. And we also don't know if that one person is somebody in Iowa who's just tuning into your church in New York because they used to go, you know, in other words, and you begin to realize we still actually don't really know who we've got and what's going on. And basically, I think the main thing is not only is everybody tired, uh, but nobody's getting any positive affirmation. See, almost always you've got some wins every year, some things, oh, isn't it great? The Lord's doing this and the Lord's doing that. And like, oh, no, almost nobody's getting any pats on the back. Nobody's saying this is great. Um, so you're, you're just running and running to try to keep things together. And there's no, there's no hugs, literally no hugs. Yeah. So it's, it's like uh, you're get, they're getting absolutely no, no affirmation. Um, and there have been, uh, and also there's, uh, there, there's, you know, there are, there's just a tremendous amount of loneliness, a feeling of being separated from so many people that we care about. We just can't live this way. So I, on the other hand, I wouldn't say, I'm not sure that pastors are necessarily more depressed than everybody else. Cause I, a young, you know, teenagers, a friend of mine's son just tried to commit suicide, 16 years old. Not, not all that unusual, not up here in New York. An awful lot of the kids are just feeling cut off and like there's no hope and so yeah anyway it's the the biggest problem is you don't really know who's with you who's really left who's coming back you don't really get any kind of real decent feedback and the zoom there's we can talk a little bit about, about remote zoom call stuff mm-hmm. um it it is way way better than nothing way way better but at the same time it's still not we're in our, we have bodies and we, we really do need to be in the presence of each other. I think so. Yeah. We, uh, we, I want to be respectful of the time and I definitely want to talk about your new book, uh, which is, which is about hope (laughs) in, uh, in the face of difficulty and fear. Um, but let's talk a little bit about digital church. I think almost every church is now online and uh, probably, you know, as David has written about at uh, Barna, um, hybrid church appears to be a big part of the future. I'd love your thoughts on that. What are the limits? What are the potentials? What are what are the dangers? The traps? Huh. Well, let me let me go to the, let me let me be negative and then dial it back. I don't know if I should do it that way. Maybe I should be positive and dial it back. But wait, for example, um, Dr. David Martin Lloyd Jones. Um, was, a, was a, just a tremendous preacher. For those of you, my guess most of, most of your audience will know who he is, but he was a British preacher uh, in a big church in London, the heart of London, for many years, basically through World War II in the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s, I think it was. 
and he he preached to big congregations. For a long time, he resisted allowing his sermons to be recorded. And the um, the reason for that was, uh, and for, I, we're all very grateful. Eventually, he allowed himself to be recorded. But his argument was pretty hard to refute. Um, it wasn't a good enough reason not to listen. I mean, not to not to record them. But what he said is, do you really think that if you are walking along or driving in your car and listening to a sermon, that it will have the same shaping impact on you as if you are in the presence of the of the congregation? Uh, you're in the presence of the minister who's preaching. You have been uh, you've been praying together in, you know, body next to body next to body audibly. You've been praying together. You've been singing God's praises together. And then the minister speaks to you. Do you really think you're going to be shaped by the sermon, by the word of God, as you're driving on your car, as you would be if you were in that spot in the body in front of, you know, in the gathered community? He says, of course not. And, you know, when, when he says that, you begin to say, of course, he's right. And by the way, I've been on, just like you have, a zillion Zoom calls. And the reality is, it is still easier. I mean, you know, you're really only this. Sorry, guys. You're only about this part. If I was in your presence, you would actually be mine. You would you would fill my field of vision. You don't. You're like this. And everybody knows that people do look at their email during Zoom calls. And they do. In other words, you are not as present. You just simply are not. And yet it's so much better. I keep thinking, boy, 10 years ago, we just these would be conference calls on the phone. It, it is still better because I'm actually seeing faces. And so I'm seeing your body. And I think I'm reincarnate beings and beings. And even seeing a person's body is better than just listening to their, their voice. Nevertheless, it, the, the, there is, uh, it, will, it can't replace. I'll give you one more example of this. Mm. Uh, it can't replace in-person experience. Therefore, what's on the other hand, it does reach a whole lot of people. Let me give you two examples. I've been teaching students, and uh, I teach preaching. I teach ministry students in the city. On the one hand, the Zoom, the Zoom only, which is what we've done, is really helpful because people's lives are so busy. They are so crazy and busy that the I get perfect attendance every time. And before that, you know what? Listen, honestly, people trying to juggle all the stuff they're juggling and still get ministry training in the city is um, they, you know, always I had about 10 to 15 percent of the people could never make, you know, it was always some uh, absenteeism and they, and they didn't like. So this they, a lot of them say this is really helpful. And yet at the same time, they also realize that though they're 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 staying with me. They're not getting to know each other. That's a big problem. They're not getting to know each other, which is a very big part of um, being part of a, if you're in a class of 15, uh, other people who are learning preaching and you live in the same in New York City, at least four or five of those people are going to become real good friends and they're really going to be a big help to you. But what's happening with the Zoom is they're not becoming really good friends. They're all getting me really well. And I'm not even sure, frankly, that there, if, if, if anything, I would say the vertical, you might say the relationship, getting the content from the minute from the instructor is probably almost as good, if not a little better, because there's a, there's a discipline to it and nobody misses. But when it comes to the horizontal aspect of, of the education, it's a lot worse. And so all I'm trying to say is something in the middle, brothers. Mm. Uh, I think I think we can probably draw a lot more people in evangelistically if we're really smart on how we use uh, digital church. I do not think we should just go back to the way it was. I think there's a ton of people out there who are more online than they used to be. And they're more afraid of commitment than they used to be. And this is perfect for reaching a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't even know anything about your church. On the other hand, uh, is, well, here's my last example, Kate Bowler. Uh, you might know who she is. She's a Duke University. She, she teaches at Duke Divinity School. She's got stage four colon cancer, I think. She's got some kind of cancer. Young mother. Um, she's kind of making it right now. But once I met her at one point, and she said the thing that's frightening to her is that because she's written a couple books on her cancer and all that, thousands of people through the internet are trying to 
say, oh, you're helping me so much. And she's come to realize that people are so disembedded from community that they're trying, they're looking to her as a celebrity sufferer to minister to her and she, to minister to them. And she's saying, you can't do that. You need a community. And she's realizing, and she's talking to all these other people who are suffering like she is, and they've got cancer. They don't have communities like they used to. Things are so mobile. They're not near extended family. They're not near, they just, they, they're all alienated from the church. They don't like the church, so they don't have any community. And she said, "I'm sorry." On a web a website for you know for a celebrity sufferer is not going to be what you need if you've got cancer. You need somebody to make you chicken soup. You know, I can't do that. You need somebody to do those things for you. And and so that's what makes makes me say I think we're going to be somewhere smack in the middle. That when it's all over, we're going to say there's a lot of things we can do digitally that are actually going to involve more people. We're going to be able to do better education. We're going to do, be able to do better outreach. And yet at the same time, we, we, we have to use the digital to woo people into face-to-face relationships or they're not really going to be changed by the gospel. It's interesting, you know, because I, I think you're totally right about community, and I'm sure you get those letters too. You know, Tim, I'm really struggling with X, and you know, I when I get them, it's like you need to talk to somebody who knows you and know, knows the situation, right? Like I don't know. Uh, here, here's a question for you. One of the critiques of large church, and you pastored a very large church. You're there with hundreds or a thousand other adults. That's not really community either. Arguably, you're in a moment. You're in an experience. One of the trends that's emerging is what we might call microchurches or distributed gatherings where perhaps we're not in a building owned by the church, but I could be gathering in my home with 10 other Christians and perhaps a neighbor who's experiencing Jesus for the first time. So it's like an iteration of small group. Um, any, any thoughts on that? And then perhaps you're, you're watching digitally, but you're gathered in person. This is like post-vaccine, all that stuff. Well, it's a little, yes, it's a little too impermanent is the big problem. Mm. One, one of the things I know that here's where you, you don't want, you want to say to Christians, are you really being shaped by what the Bible says or by your culture? The culture is anti-institutional in the extreme. And, and what is an institution? It's something that actually um, keeps going when the people are gone because <laughs> the institution has its own, its own, uh, its own being. And one of the big problems we've, uh, over the years, every, I'll tell you, I've been here 32 years. We still haven't had a really great house church movement in New York city. Hmm. And the reason is what, what, what is the impermanence? People get very excited, but if you, it's a, it's a mobile world now. And, and something that really is just changing your life. Oh my goodness. And suddenly half the people move away over a six month period and it falls apart. And there's no, there's no bigger community that you can go to to form another one or to be part of, and then you feel left out. So rather than microchurch, I still think, though, every city needs an ecosystem in which you have all-sized churches. And I would just speak, a church of five or 6,000 can do things that no other church can do, and they do them for the whole city. You can, they can start counseling centers. They can start church planning center, they can start things that everybody in the city gets to use. On the other hand, as a minister, Gary, you're absolutely right that there's a huge number of people that hide in a big church. They say, that's my church, but they're really not being formed by it. They're just too, they, they, they're really around the edges of it. So in general, I would certainly say that in general, in general, a city would be far better served and, and the individuals in the church would be far better served by 10 churches of 500 rather than one church of 5,000. The neighborhoods would be reached better, the people in them would be deployed better and pastored better in general. And yet, if you think I'm saying that there no, the city should never have churches of 5,000, actually every church, every city needs big churches. So there we go. I'd love to draft back and talk just a little about uh, the journey of suffering that I've been on uh, this last four years with my wife's uh, disease and then her passing in October. And I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I've have been really benefiting from the book you and Kathy, your wife wrote um, uh, the songs of Jesus, a da- daily meditation in the Psalms. And uh, for, for me, at least um, the Psalms have been one of the few, few places in scripture I can go routinely because it does express this full range of 
a God I can believe in who can sort of be a recipient of all my anger and frustration and loss and questions and also my deepest uh, place of trust and hope. And um, I just love to know what your what your rhythms have been like since your diagnosis. Uh, you, you alluded a little bit to this uh, in the Atlantic article, but love to hear you tell our listeners a little bit how, how you're finding peace and solace and to, to what extent you are uh, in scripture and in your faith during this time. Well, um, Kat, Kat, first of all, Kathy and I, I'll just tell you exactly what we do when it comes to just the, the nuts and bolts. Kathy reads three chapters. We, we do the McShane reading calendar, which is a way to get through the Bible in a year. I read four chapters a day, which gets you to the Old Testament once and New Testament twice in a year. Kathy reads three chapters a day. Um, that's all she can take in, she said. But we, but we do the three chapters she reads, I'm reading too. So it's a way of saying what's God saying to us today. Um, secondly, I still do the Psalms every month. Uh, you might, that is to say, I use the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, so I read, pray. Uh, Psalms morning and evening, and you get through 150 every month. And uh, David, I mean, if you the advantage of doing that is you you run the gamut of it, and um, there, every day there's something that just speaks right to you because the Psalms go through every possible, uh, you might say, emotional condition you can be in any situation, right? That, that human beings can have, and so we're up and down a lot, as you know. You can, be, you can you get some good news or, you know, your wife or I, you know, in my case, it's me really feeling good. And we go do something. And as you know, uh, ordinary things, if you do them well and you're feeling good that day can be more precious than they used to be. You took them for granted. And so those days, the Psalms, you just hit a Psalm that's a, filled with Thanksgiving. And other days you hit a Psalm that, I mean, you're always hitting Psalms that are exactly what you were feeling. <laughs> Yeah, right. And it's just so, I don't know what to say. It's so empowering. I hate to use that word. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have used that word. It's just so overused. Um, it's it, But it is empowering to see it reflected in the word of God. And then very often more eloquently. Sometimes the depth of the anger or the questions of God feel like, wow, I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's even stronger than I would express it, but it is, it taps into something deeper in me. It's right. one of the things uh I think my confidence in scripture as I've grown older has only increased because Ecclesiastes feels like it's so written for an ambitious person like yeah. me who, who, yeah. who realizes all the end of this ambition isn't going to amount for much or in the case of Psalms, uh, a, a place for, you know, uh, crying out to the Lord, lamentations. It's such a fascinating uh, part of the story of lamentations, like the great is thy faithfulness. Uh, that song actually is birthed in a in a lament, and uh, that was my wife's Jill's favorite song, and even sung at our wedding. And so, this idea of God was tying a whole thread of His His goodness for us, even in our sorrow, uh, from the very first day that our wedding began. And and so then she when she said, "Hey, I want you to plan my funeral to play, you know, great is thy faithfulness." It was a pretty tough day, uh, but the sense in which the the goodness of God to to provide for us yeah. a scriptural basis for lament and uh and for you know for our suffering has been for me a uh, a place that i couldn't i couldn't have imagined going and i couldn't have imagined it providing a a greater anchor to my soul uh than it has oh, i feel like i'm on holy ground well i do want to talk about your book uh hope in times of fear um the world needs hope we need hope. People are going, leaders listening, pastors listening. I think you're right. They're very unaffirmed for the last year. There have been no wins or very few. Many listeners are navigating their own personal health crisis or the death of a loved one or um, dissolution of a board or tribalization and politics and division in the congregation and so on. Close us on some hope. Tell us what's in the book. Obviously, it's about the resurrection, but I would love for you just to give us a pastoral word as we we close up. Well, I read the book was originally um, was supposed to be a kind of a, a short book. You might say a, a companion book to a book I wrote not that long ago on, on Christmas, which was a series of little meditations on Christmas. So actually my publisher originally said, how about a book on Easter? You know, some meditations on Easter. So I had already started the book and then the pandemic hit. And then I got, I got the cancer diagnosis and 
and here I'm working on the book on the resurrection. And well, that that it didn't change it technically. It just it certainly expanded. It certainly made this much more. I don't know how to say it. I mean, obviously, working on a book day after day when you're struggling with all the the bad news about your cancer, and yet the book is just filled with all the good news. I mean, I mean, the resurrection um, is first of all, if the resurrection happened, then everything's going to be okay. Okay. Um, and that's the first chapter in the book. So I went back and redid the Tom Wright, the N.T. Wright's, uh, uh, so much of his scholarship, not just his big, thick book, which is The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is the best book written on the resurrection in the last hundred years. But he's actually done other work since then. And so I put all that together, plus a few other, my, some of my own thoughts, but not mainly his thoughts in chapter one. Because if, if the resurrection happened and whatever else it's going to be okay. The other thing, though, is we don't know what to do with the resurrection practically. You know, I have a I have a systematic theology of Charles Hodge, who was a Princeton theologian. You know, uh, in his systematic theology, 128 pages on the cross, on the on the death of Christ, four on the resurrection, <laughs> because we we tend to think, well, the resurrection it happened, and that proves he's the Son of God. But how does that change my life? It's sort of like a, a magic trick almost that proves that God, you know, is real. But actually, the resurrection does change everything because if the resurrection happened, not only is there hope, and that means confidence in the future, but secondly, the resurrection actually teaches, the New Testament teaches that when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he brought the powers of the age to come. That's what, into our world now. So our, the kingdom of God is present, but not present, as, as you heard before. If you just read what Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels about the kingdom, it's very confusing because sometimes he talks about the, pre- the kingdom as if it's present. It's going to be here. It's here. Now it's in your midst. Other times he talks about when I come back, you know, with all my angels to, to bring the kingdom. And you say, well, is it here or is it not here? And the answer is, Yeah. Uh, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he brought the powers of the age to come through the Holy Spirit into our lives now. The very, the very power that's going to actually completely cleanse the world of all suffering, evil, and death at the end of time is already in our lives now. Not fully, but partially. And what's perfect about that is it's just perfect for every day. You know why? Because on the one hand, it keeps you from either um, a naive optimism that if I really pray, I'll be healed. And anybody who's not healed, you're not praying. Well, that's an over-realized view of the kingdom. It's that you're acting as if the kingdom is completely present. Well, it's not. Or we're going to get out there, we're going to change the world and get rid of all the systemic racism. Well, you're not. Because the, not until Jesus comes back. On the other hand, if you're just too pessimistic, you know, we're defeated. There's no reason to pray. God never heals anymore. There's no reason we can make any changes. Things are terrible. The culture is falling apart. Let's get the wagons together in a circle and just hold hands. That's also, that's not the doctrine of the resurrection. You've got a real power. The power of the age to come, that's Hebrews talks about that, is in your life now. And and amazing things can happen. So it's pastorally, it's perfect. And it's because it keeps me from being either cynical or naive. And whenever I tend to cynicism, the, the, doctrine of the resurrection pulls me back when I tend into naivete and and start to get like, oh, everything's going to be fine now because we started, you know, I got a good scan. And then forgetting, no, I'm sorry, it's not till the very end of time will everything be okay. So the resurrection is not something that just is a wonderful sign of, it's not an, just an apologetic proof that God exists, whether Jesus was the son of God. It's actually something I get. It got to get out every single day. The other thing, by the way, Carrie, the other thing is, it's the resurrection is paired with the death of Christ. It's the death and resurrection of Christ that saves us, which means God tends to work through weakness. So that when you know you're going to experience a lot of weakness, then you have to say, "But God brings resurrection." Elizabeth Elliot, it was a good te- a teacher of ours at Gordon Conwell. She used to say. Everything in the Christian life is is a resurrection after a death. So she says, for example, if somebody wrongs you, 
you might decide, I'm just going to go pay them back. I'm just going to tell them how awful they are. Or I could forgive them in my heart and then go and, and urge them to see what they've done wrong. She says, that, that's like a death because you want to just scratch their eyes out, but you don't. You, I'm going to forgive. And so it's like a death. But if you don't go through that death, probably if you just go and scratch their eyes out, that person will not listen to you. They'll just get worse at what they're doing. And your friendship is over. But if you go through the death of forgiveness, in a sense, there's a possibility of a resurrection of that your, your friend might actually see the, the, the truth and a resurrection of, of the relationship. And she says, everything is like that. Every time you obey God, you're sort of dying to your self-will. And yet you're rising again to become a person of virtue. And eventually you're going to really die in order to be raised. And so everything in the Christian life and in life is about death and resurrection. So that so it's not right that we have four pages on the resurrection. I wrote 230. <laughs> I've corrected Charles Hodge, and I sure hope that he appreciates it. <laughs> Sorry. Tim, you've been uh, fantastically generous with your time. And I just want to echo what David said when we began. I, I just personally am so grateful uh, for you, for your ministry, for your writing. Um, keep writing. We're going to keep praying for you. We are in your corner. And uh, thank you so, so much for being with us today. I really think that the good scans and all that are largely because of prayer. And David certainly knows what it's like to have your whole family just lift, you know, basically kind of like moving along on pe other people's prayers. You can tell the difference. You know when people are praying. So mm -hmm. thank you. Well, that was rich. Really, really powerful. Thanks so much, Tim. Uh, I, I continue to be so grateful. And wasn't that amazing? I think he remembered our conversation in New York City better than I did, which kind of humbled me and blew me away. If you have not checked out the first interview, you can find it on YouTube. Um, I, some of you prefer to watch. Most of you listen to this show. Uh, but if you want, you can head on over to YouTube. You can check it out. Just Google Tim's name and my name. You'll find us. And of course, obviously, uh, we will link to everything in the show notes, which you can find at kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 414. Thanks to our partners who make all of this possible. And I got a what I'm thinking about segment. I'm going to talk about my take on the future church. So I'll share that in just a moment. Also, um, I love it when people who have the intellectual breadth and depth of a Tim Keller weigh in on the future. Also got Simon Sinek to do that. Uh, just did my interview with Simon, which is coming up. I think in May, mid-May maybe. And uh, boy, we talk about all kinds of things, but then he weighs in on why the church keeps losing ground. It's fascinating. Also coming up, we have, let's see, uh, Mark Clark, Christine Kane, Gordon McDonald is back, Greg McEwen, Essentialism, one of my favorites, uh, David Nurse, and uh, who else have we got? We got Chris McChesney from the 4DX, Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School. But next time, we got Dave Ferguson. Dave talks about, well, because I'm fascinated by it, the future of the church, networks, and culture in the future. Here's an excerpt. What I think this does is I think it finally gives us the opportunity as the world gets smaller, we can learn from those folks. And I think also the pandemic also helps this, is I think people are looking for smaller contexts, feel more comfortable in smaller contexts. And I think that's created more of an environment for these smaller expressions. So for us, these three C communities are smaller expressions of the church that are being launched where you live, where you work, and where you play. That's coming up next time. Subscribers, uh, you know that will automatically pop up in your feed. If you're new to this, welcome. We have welcomed a lot of new people over the last few months. And uh, yeah, just subscribe. And if this episode was meaningful to you, please let us know on social. You can tag Tim Keller. He's Tim Keller NYC uh, on most of the channels. And uh, just let us know how this is helping you and what we can do to serve you better because that is our heartbeat. Well, now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And uh, this is brought to you by Promedia Fire. If you would like done for you social media, check them out at promediafire.com forward slash growth. Book a free consult today. And by Glue and Barna Cities. Get to know the people you're serving by signing up today. Check out your city at barnacities.com. Well, uh, a year ago, I wrote a post in the middle of the beginning of the pandemic about the biggest leadership mistake you could make. And a year later, kind of refreshed the post and put it back on my blog. And I want to share that with you. By the way, I do write fairly regularly over at kerryneuhoff.com. You know, things have changed radically. And a lot of people, you're back in your buildings, you know, things are opening up, particularly in America, not so much in Canada, where 
the virus as I record this is still surging like crazy in, a, in an insane way. And I know we have a global audience too. I mean, we're watching you, India, Argentina. I mean, this thing is far from over. Um, but for some of you, I mean, I talk to American church leaders. It's like, yeah, it doesn't, it's like it never really happened, except, except something dramatically changed. The culture accelerated. And um, a lot of leaders are finding it hard to get back to what 2019 presented as 100% of their attendance. Not quite there yet. A few of you are. And if that's the case, that's awesome. But many people are saying, well, you know, society's open again and like I'm missing 20%. And they may be gone or their patterns are different because America became more post-Christian. I think you could argue over the last year, people have got new habits and also they've discovered technology and they realize, oh, you know what? Like, we can, we can approach church differently. And here's the big mistake so many leaders continue to make. Too many church leaders step right back into the past the moment they step back in their building. And if you think that's a harsh judgment, wait until Simon Sinek comes on because he's got something really passionate to say about that. And listen, I'm somebody who has led from a building for 20 years, so I get this. But here's what's at stake when you just say, we're going to get back to normal. Everything's going to be the way it was. Everybody back in the building, we're going to have church again. And listen, there will always be buildings, um, but we're in a hybrid era now, right? We're online and digital. You can slip seamlessly from one to the other. And you may say, well, digital isn't the same. It doesn't really matter whether you think digital is the same or not. If people are going to access it, you have to figure out how do you share the gospel with them? How do you do that? So here's what happens if you step back into the past when you step back into your building by trying to make everything the way it was. Number one, your innovation curve will come to an abrupt stop. You're just going to stop trying. And then you're going to get frustrated because attendance isn't growing as quickly and you're not reaching as many people and they're not as engaged. And remember, distributed gatherings are probably a thing in the future too. Dave Ferguson and I are going to talk about that next time. Um, crisis is a cradle for innovation and the future belongs to the innovators. You do not need a pandemic to be disrupted. The church was being disrupted a long time ago. The taxi industry has been disrupted. Sears got disrupted. Kodak got disrupted. All right. And the church is being disrupted. And if you're like, no, we're just going to go back to where it was. Well, you're going to get disrupted and it won't be a pleasant experience. Second thing is you'll stop pivoting. Uh, closely related to innovation is pivoting. And I've got some resources over at the 30-Day Pivot uh, that I think over a thousand leaders have now, a thousand organizations have now accessed. And um, you can check that out. But I got to tell you, like pivoting is going to be critical. We're pivoting again in my company this year. And why are we doing it? Because we want to help more leaders. We want to help people live in a way today that will help them thrive tomorrow. And the future almost always belongs to agile leaders who adapt and change. I'm just finishing up the uh, book that Reed Hastings and uh, Aaron Meyer wrote about Netflix culture. It is fantastic. And you want a, a study in agility? Oh my goodness. Uh, read that book. It's called, uh, Net. what's it called? Okay. I'm pulling it up right now. No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. It's by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer. It is so good. You want to talk about agility? Oh my goodness. Baked into Netflix culture, which is why they became globally dominant. Anyway, third, <laughs> and there's a powerful story in the uh, opening chapter of that book. You'll see online as an add-on, not the future. There's a now semi-famous story that Reed Hastings went to the then chair of Blockbuster and said, hey, we'll run your online division. And they famously said no. And uh, Netflix went on to dominate and Blockbuster, as you know, went under. And online is not an add-on. It is the future. It's a future. If you see online as an add-on, not the future, you'll miss most of the very people you're trying to reach. And you know, when you think about resource allocation, we all have limited time, money, and people. You can't have a massive impact online when you spend 10% of your staffing resources on it. Fourth thing that'll happen is you'll get crushed by unpredictability. You see, rushing back to the past kind of leaves you with this idea that that's okay. I know this. It's known. And if I can just get back there, everything's going to be okay. Well, the problem is the future is probably a little bit more uncertain then you want, have you checked out the Indian variant of coronavirus? And even, let's say coronavirus goes away. Do you think we live in a very stable world that isn't changing quickly? No, we don't. And unpredictability crushes those who look for stability. But if you keep your agility uh, alive and you're willing and able to pivot, you can thrive. And then finally, you're going to miss that legal permission is different than social behavior. Yes, uh, particularly in the U.S. and in other places, the U.K., uh, people and Australia, New Zealand too, right? We see you guys. 
you're going to get to the point in parts of Asia where it's like, hey, this almost feels normal again. But legal permission, being allowed to gather, is different than social behavior. Do you really want the middle seat on your flight to LA tomorrow if it's a five-hour flight? I mean, really? Do you want that? I didn't want it before, but do I want it now? Uh, Or do you want this? Do you want to be next to the unvaccinated guy at the NFL game who just sloshed his beer all over you and coughed all through the second quarter? Mm, Not signing up for that. And will you walk into the crowded bread aisle in the supermarket and stand painfully close to people at the checkout? Probably not for a while. And even if you do, you got the whole online thing. It's like, you know what? We're in the habit now of church takes an hour. We share it with our friends and away we go. Like you've got to learn to adapt. And if you don't adapt, you'll die. So it's hard to go back to normal when normal disappeared. So those are some thinkings. I think the biggest leadership mistake church leaders can make in 2021 is to step back into the past when you step back into your building. And I know that's a really, really tough lesson to hear. Um, but hey, I know you're overcomers. You figured it out. You're, you're, you know, the future is not scary to those who are ready to embrace it. And I think you're that kind of leader. So uh, yeah, avoid that mistake. Hey, if that's helpful, I got a lot more over at kerryneuhoff.com. Send a daily email to about 80,000 leaders. If you're interested in that, you can uh, go to kerryneuhoff.com forward slash email. And uh, very excited to keep bringing you these conversations. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. Hey, leaders, I know we're heading out. If you haven't yet checked out thehighimpactleader.com, please do so today. I'd love to help you get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. Some very limited time offers happening right now. So go to thehighimpactleader.com. Love to get a moleskin in your hands. If you're one of the first people to jump in, I'm doing live coaching for anybody and everybody who jumps in. A big group coaching session on, uh, well, becoming more productive. So that's happening over this week at thehighimpactleader.com. Would love to see you there. And we'll catch you next time on the podcast. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.